If you're a fan of continuity and want to know why I will keep saying second story for the next half an hour or so, I would recommend listening to Inside the Joint Venture One, where I talk about opium, China, and the British Raj in India. And if you don't care about that stuff and you just want to listen to this episode as it is, you're very welcome to start right here. I believe that the American government has studied and excelled at the modern art of war. And hear me out, I can back my claim. I've been binge-watching this show called Designated Survivor recently. It isn't the best writing in a show I've seen, not not by far, but I've just consumed episode after episode of that show for a few reasons. One, it is a manifestation of how glorified the president of the United States is to the world. He's the ultimate beacon of power. He's the man with the nuclear codes, the quote-unquote leader of the free world. But the show also turns into commentary about how important media and its manipulation, you could say, is to the American presidency, or by extension, any democratic leadership of the same kind of format. I, I swear this is going to come back to India at some point, so bear with me. Pop culture has often glorified the American presidency, and not without reason. The president of America over years, or decades rather, of twisting of cultural and constitutional reform has become way more powerful than one person should be allowed to be. And honestly, we all saw the fear build in our minds when we thought about Donald Trump and the fact that he could make an outlandish claim on Twitter and actually back it up. He could say, I want to attack North Korea tomorrow and drop a nuke right there. And today's story takes after sort of the starting of this surge in power for the American president. Today's story is about the American war on drugs. This story is going to need a lot of context. And that is for you to have the right context going forward and fully understand what happened. And more importantly, why and how it happened. Let's start with American President Richard Nixon. He's a very famous president uh, compared to some others. Well, President Nixon was an American Republican leader who was appointed to the office of the president twice and was known for the Watergate scandal in his second term, which eventually led to the end of his second term. He was the first US president in over a century since Andrew Johnson in 1868 to be the subject of impeachment proceedings in the House of Representatives. And ever since two or three of Nixon's successors, if you also count Trump, have gone undergone similar proceedings and both were impeached, but then acquitted at the consequent Senate trial, much like Trump. Thus, while Nixon himself was not impeached, the impeachment process against him is so far the only one to cause a president's departure from office. I like this little factoid and I always like to include it when I tell this story because it sort of gives you an exposition into what this guy's reputation was. He was a man surrounded by controversy and drama for the majority of his second term in office. His public image wasn't doing so good. An impeachment trial is very representative of that. It was in his second term, in fact, and for most of its campaigning that he talked about the war on drugs as well. And also around this time in 1970 was when the anti-Vietnam war sentiment was at its peak and it was one of the biggest organized protest movements at the time. And this becomes relevant later in the story. 
Nixon coined the phrase war on drugs in mid 1971. He wasn't the first one to bring out this issue of drugs to the world or even to America. The Americans have been campaigning to ban all drugs since the early 1960s, so he wasn't the first one at all to start this movement. But it was Nixon whose term war on drugs became quite the catchphrase and formalized this whole reform movement. He was also the first one to sign this into law. Adam Raphael quoted him in this newspaper as saying, "I am convinced that the only way to fight this menace is by attacking it on many fronts." The catchphrase war on drugs mimicked that of Nixon's predecessor Lyndon Johnson, who had declared a war on poverty during his time in 1964. Ever since then, we've also seen the infamous war on terror post 9/11. So, honestly, it's not very hard to tell why this kind of messaging is so popular with the audiences. Firstly, people unite and often rally behind a leader when you're at war. And this was of course more popular in the non-information era when things weren't refuted more often when finding the proof behind reasons of starting a war weren't so public when all the information was served either on news channels that were controlled by the government or news was just suppressed in in a general national sentiment um to protect the nation secondly you're declaring war on something that just can't win against you it's a war you'll eventually win because when you think about something like drugs or poverty or terror these things don't win against you these are not a country these are not china these are not vietnam and they don't have a fighting chance against you so you decide the terms of when the war starts when the ceasefire happens when you sign that peace treaty that happens at the end of war however there is some level of danger to this form of campaigning as well and this is one of those things that i read um extensively about and i think one of the best things i've heard on this one of the very good cases i've heard on this i would say is one by dan carlin where on an episode of the joe rogan experience back in like 2013 he described it by saying that because of the amount of power a president has over years and years of constitutional reform it's made it so that they can announce a war without consulting with their congress and on account of the war the rules that bind the president's actions or the actions of anyone working at his behest just disappear and that probably works when you're at war with a country and you must do everything you can to end the war so something like waterboarding a terrorist to get information about a bombing might seem like something you would want to do if it's war time of course war time law is a thing but coming further to the point What happens when you're not at war with a country? What happens when you're at war with an abstract concept? The war on terror was a concept brought about by a scarred Bush government post 9/11 who was scared and for bringing justice and for winning this war on terror Muslims and other brown people were picked up left and right, questioned, searched, imprisoned, tortured in many cases and mostly without warrants, mostly without information to anyone except their families who just knew they had disappeared but there's no ceasefire here there's no end to this war if you don't announce it so today if joe biden wanted to come out and announce they want to do a war against piracy or another war against terror he could very well just throw the constitution out the window and nobody would be able to do a thing about it 
And once the government anywhere around the world can start incarcerating people on the suspicion of being a terrorist or a drug addict, we're all under suspicion of being a terrorist or a drug addict. There is no stopping a government like that. I've often heard lawmakers around the world say this, and it rings true in retrospect that every law, every rule that's set into stone, must be such that if the person you hate, the person who who you think could destroy the world if he had the chance, if that person had this rule in hand, what would they do with it? And the story that goes forward lays the roots into what becomes this rampant misconstruing of rules that exist around the President of the United States. And if you're sitting here looking down at the United States and their seemingly lopsided distribution of power, we are not much better off in India either. Just because the United States gets more coverage, gets more lights on them, just because they're bigger on the agenda, bigger on the radar, it does not mean that other countries aren't doing the exact same thing, just getting away with it much easier. So President Nixon's campaigning for the war on drugs was defined and spread around largely as a public health crisis. Drug abuse, said the president, was public enemy number one. While a large aspect of that in the Nixon era was at least, at, at least at the time, was true, there was, as there always is, a reason beyond what meets the eye. And this is very recently re- revealed information, actually. One of Richard Nixon's top advisors and a key figure in the Watergate scandal, who's been in jail for decades and decades, said that the war on drugs was created as a political tool to fight blacks and hippies. According to a 1994 interview published in Harper's Magazine in 2016, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. And this is a statement by domestic policy chief John Ehrlichman. And he said further, quote, You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the people to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities, Ehrlichman said. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Soon after signing the war on drugs into law, Nixon temporarily placed marijuana in something called Schedule 1. So, when the first law on drugs and drug abuse was made, five schedules were made and each schedule was a degree of danger associated with the drug, Schedule 1 being the maximum. Pending review by a commission he appointed led by a Republican governor, he placed marijuana on what was supposed to be the most restrictive category of drugs, coupled with stuff like cocaine. In 1972, the commission unanimously recommended decriminalizing the possession and distribution of marijuana for personal use. And Nixon ignored the report and rejected its recommendations. Over the next decade or so, many states in the US did decriminalize marijuana for personal use. And President Jimmy Carter campaigned with one of his goals being the decriminalization of marijuana. But soon after President Ronald Reagan took office in 1981, his wife, Nancy Reagan, 
began a highly publicized anti-drug campaign with the slogan Just Say No, which was intended to highlight the dangers of drug use. And because of this, the cultural backlash on marijuana increased and parents were just more concerned about the high rates of teen marijuana use because it was also illegal. All in all, the 80s was a very wild time for the war on drugs. And this is a very important part of the story. Public concern about illicit drug use built throughout the 80s, largely due to media portrayals of people addicted to crack. This, combined with Ronald Reagan's push for draconian policies for drug use, meant that the war on drugs was back on the central agenda. In 1985, a survey was made essentially, where the proportion of Americans who saw drug use as the nation's number one problem was just 2 to 6%. This figure grew to a remarkable 64% in September 1989 and this has been one of the most intense fixation by the American public on any issue in polling history. However, within less than a year, this figure plummeted down to less than 10% again because the media just lost interest. The media was as fickle then as it is now, but what happened in the decade was a result of this collective media outrage, combined with draconian political policies that focused more on incarceration and arrests rather than real drug reform, or keeping real harmful drugs out of the hands of kids. It's not hard to tell what or who this was targeted towards. Black and Hispanic communities were hurt the most by these laws. The war on drugs became a political weapon to militarize the police force, relax laws on forfeiture and search and seizure, Make it so that if the cops could break into my house, say, take all my money, seize my car, take it with them without a warrant, without any need for explanation, and it was up to me to sue the police, prove that the assets weren't bought from drug money. And if I can't do that, and I can't take my stuff back, some or most of that money goes back to the people who seized it. So at the time, and this is just some extra information because it kind of makes sense to put it here, Two sort of search and seizure laws existed, one for criminals and one for the civil sort of normal people. Both of them had different thresholds and different penalties. And during this war on drugs time when the police was more militarized and more incentivized, both of these search and seizure laws were combined, taking the low threshold for, dis for searching on one, combining it with the high penalty on the other, and just making it so that cops are powerful. And if you wanted your stuff back, you had to prove that it wasn't bought from drug money, which not everyone could do. The media outrage over crack and marijuana in the 80s covered up years of draconian policy making. That took decades to dismantle and replace with real drug rehabilitation. Now look, I think I've talked about 20 odd minutes about what the war on drugs was in the United States. And I did say this will come back to India at some point. Now, the Indian government, like any other ally of the United States, wasn't ignorant to the general public sentiment in the United States. India has been battling American pressure since 1961 to keep marijuana legal. Since 1961, the US has been campaigning for a global law against all drugs, both hard and soft. The US was also the country to introduce the 1988 convention against drug abuse and trafficking in the United Nations. 
given that ganja charas and bhang were a way of life in india and bhang continues to be the government has always opposed it to some extent but by the early 80s the american society was covered in mass hysteria about drug abuse and the excessive of a hippie culture that in 1985 as a product of looking at the america deal with its problems the government under rajiv gandhi buckled under the pressure and enacted a law called the narcotic drugs and psychotropic substances act and the times of india was one of the many news outlets that criticized this law which honestly was a shocker to me the criticism was very specific and i to be honest very fruitful they criticized the law for, that was made at the time for combining hard and soft drugs under a single umbrella making it so that drug dealers would work with more harmful drugs where the margins are much higher so if if you're a drug dealer you might as well get arrested for the big stuff because you're getting arrested either way the administration at the time had claimed soft drugs were considered gateway drugs and had placed a blanket ban on everything and this has since been proven wrong of course The embellishment of this drug problem that the American media had crafted finally had an effect on the Indian government and by extension to the Indian masses as well. In the last two decades, many states in the USA decriminalized recreational marijuana, basically copping out the drug war themselves after making half of the world, including India, ban all drugs. Now, the generation of the people growing up in the 90s grew up listening to stories of drug abuse among celebrities and famous people and stories of hippie culture and reefer madness in the USA names like sanjay dat come to mind and his story this is what created this madness and hysteria image for all sorts of drugs and placed them under a single umbrella and placing them under a single umbrella is very convenient because our government did the same thing and there wasn't nearly enough awareness being spread among the people explaining what is harmful and what isn't hell there wasn't even enough awareness to talk about what does what and i i remember asking my parents this very recently and this was before the whole stir up about drugs in the media about whether they knew what was in bhang or what a joint meant At first they gave me a pretty bullshit answer with advice about how these are vices and you shouldn't consume any of it but beyond that they had no idea they'd always just coupled it under drugs and they thought the white powder you saw in movies was the same thing that you would find in these things this is a generation of people born in the 70s spent a chunk of their youth in the 90s basically having next to a singular generalized image of drugs in their head although i mean your mileage may vary It's important to note that while these people while people my parents age aren't representative of this country anymore because they're not the average audience a lot of lawmakers in the country including the people who made this law in the first place belong to that demographic so i get i sort of get why these people grew up the way they did and i i get their lack of information Another theory about this ban on marijuana was about corporations wanting to keep hemp and cannabis out of the market to let their industries thrive. And the story sort of dates back to the 1930s where hemp was a very popular product and it was used to make paper, essential oils, furniture, construction material, clothes, and for recreational purposes, etc., etc. The good thing about it is it could be grown extensively 
easily and it was so inexpensive that it would pose a huge threat to the growing liquor, timber and plastic industry. So the theory suggests that the fact that corporate industries had a lot to lose from hemp competition and hence they motivated the media to encourage the propaganda around the reefer madness hysteria and an extension of that kind of influence has been the reason why India has also kept up the ban on marijuana. Look, I don't know if I'd fully buy into this theory, but as I, I'm, I'm kind of a cynic in that sense that I will ne- never be surprised if corporate influence is the reason why decision-making happens in the country, let alone just around narcotics. But the bottom line is that any society trying to normalize the usage of a substance or dealing with a vice of any kind goes through what I like to call the motions of a pendulum. You start out at an extreme where everything is permissible and fine and when you release that the pendulum goes all the way to the other extreme before it sort of settles down in the middle after a while. I feel like the United States has been dealing with this problem for the lack of a better word of drugs for a much longer time than most countries have. The same goes for a country like China or the United Kingdom as well. They've all had much longer periods of time being a single nation state than the relatively young India. And that's not to say that our constitution is not evolved enough. It is one of the best written constitutions in the world. And I believe that India is going through the same kind of motions um, as you would have found, say, 50 years ago in the United States, where from the anarchical times of an open drug market, we've come to this god of complete and total drug ban and social stigma. And I believe that at some point, our laws and lawmakers will understand the, lo- the nuance of dealing with this kind of a situation, the same way other countries have. And honestly, whether they've done it well or not is up for discussion, of course. But there is, as always, a lot more to say here, a lot of nuanced arguments that I possibly can't touch on in these episodes. I hope to come back to this sometime and report some real-time good news. But until then... This has been Inside India.